Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Nathan Detweiler. I'm the assistant pastor of this church. And today begins the final countdown on our series in James. So we are starting chapter 5, and then we're going to have... Uh, Aaron's going to speak next week, and then one more week on the 22nd. And then, what's happening shortly after that, guys? Thanksgiving, and ad- then Advent, leading up into Christmas. Can you believe it? Time really flies. It's pretty wild stuff. So uh, next week, I'll have more information about what we're doing for Advent series. I'm pretty excited about it this year. I feel like God's been speaking to me, and uh, I'm excited to share it with you guys next week. So you may be wondering, uh, what's all this, if you're visiting with us, what's all this faith story stuff? You know, we come to church for a sermon. What are these announcements? And the answer is, we're here to gather as the body of Christ. That's what it's about. We are here to be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, to hear stories of people taking faith-filled risks in their lives, to see, uh, to, to build all of our faith into the all-powerful, sovereign God who we serve, who is personal to us, who we know through Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, coming together as the body. And uh, some, some churches, you know, might think that the pastor or the elders are the head of the church, but Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, and the whole body, when it comes together like this, is nourished by the head of the church. And the, and the powerful word of God is spoken through faith stories, is spoken through sermons, spoken through lines and worship songs. Who here remembers an entire sermon verbatim? I said this last week. No one. But we remember a powerful word that God spoke to us through a sermon, a word, a phrase, an idea. It captured us, and God used it in our life. And to this day, we think of that line from that sermon we heard 20 years ago, and God still speaks it to us, and we spread it around to other people. Uh, it's about the word of God and lifting up Jesus in church. And with that, with that being said, I've prepared a sermon in prayer, in study, in, in uh, the quietness of my office, in coffee shops, uh, with children biting my ankles in my house. <laughs> um, you know, as I'm falling asleep and waking up from naps, it's going through my head. Um, I love to preach. I love to prepare. But this is about the Word of God. These are just words. God gives the power. And God's Word changes lives in a way that my words never could. So I'd like to ask you to pray for me this morning as we go into the message if you could silently, for a few minutes, just pray for me that God would speak his powerful word, um, which separates bone from marrow, judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and brings about transformation. Uh, let's pray together in, qu- in quietness, and then I'll close us. Father, in and of myself, just myself, but with the prayers of your people, which are like a sweet-smelling incense to you, and with your power, we can hear from you today. I pray that you'd open our hearts, open our minds to be renewed, that our emotions, our thoughts, our, our entire being be present to hear from you and to receive a transformation from your spirit. I pray that this body would uh, grow together as each part does its work, every supporting ligament into the head who is Christ, from which we receive all direction, nourishment, and uh, encouragement in the faith. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you uh, do not have a Bible, put your hand in the air and Usher will, Usher will bring you one. We are in James 5, 1-6 to this morning. So if you recall, last week we asked this question, how are we to live in light of the fact that the all-controlling, all-powerful, 
personal, close-at-hand God who we understand through Jesus Christ is overall, in all, and all in all. So this is a question of how do we, how do we live in light of the fact that we are not the final authority on everything? Okay? And the people around us who we look at as being authority figures are also not the final authority on everything. God is. God is real. His presence makes all of the difference. And we looked at this concept in, in relation to how we relate to others in the body of Christ. And the passage said, Do not slander or speak against, speak ill of people in the body of Christ. Do not judge other people in the body of Christ. Uh, do not harshly criticize other people in the body of Christ because you are not the ultimate authority. God is the judge. God is the only judge. He's the only one who ha- is worthy to judge other people. And uh, God has a standard. All of us are plotted below, falling below the standard. And God's been merciful to all of us. He's bent on mercy. He's forgiven us for, for breaking his law. And so all of us are under the same standard. We're all humbled by this fact. And God is the final judge. So, so when we have conversations in the body, let's keep that in mind, right? Let's keep that in mind that God's the final judge. And when we have conversations to build each other up according to each other's needs so it might benefit those who listen, let's remember that, uh, that God has the final word on things. And the only, the only suggestions we are to make are things God has already spoken on. So our opinions, our pet peeves, our personal desires for other people, three P words, should not... Uh, be the final judgment, but only what God has made clear in the scriptures, okay? We've also talked about God's being overall in all and all in all in regard to planning for the future. And what did we learn about the future last week? We don't know what it is. We don't know what the future is. So why do we, you know, how can we plan for the future without taking God into account, the one who does know what the future is, okay? So in regard to the future, we have no idea what's going to happen. It's in God's hands. And so, we have this little phrase we learned from the text. If God wills it, then dot, dot, dot. So when we pray about the future, and me and Jackie have been praying a lot because we, we have to find a new place to live, we, we've been putting this into practice, trying to be doers of the word in our own home. You know, God, if you will it, you know, can, we, can we get a house? Can we get an apartment? What's your, you know, what's your will for us? We don't know the future, but you do. Uh, we, so we acknowledge it in prayer. We also acknowledge it and when we talk about the future. And this is a great, amazing thing. The word is a very powerful thing. That's why James talks about bridling the tongue. Ed Kowalewski talked about that. When your tongue is in control, the whole body is in control many times. That's what Ed kind of talked about. Very well done. So when you speak, it's a powerful thing. When you say to another person, if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this, it's a powerful thing. You're acknowledging the Lord you're really thinking about what it means. And the person who hears that, their faith is also increased. Oh, yeah, the Lord is in control. The Lord is all in all. This is how we live in light of the sovereignty of God, the all-powerful, all-controlling, close-at-hand, personal God who we know through Christ. That's how we live in light of him. So today, we're looking at the same overall question, but in light of how we are to deal with riches, money, assets, in light uh, of God being the final authority. We're going to also talk about how we are to deal with the needs of other people in the body of Christ in light of God being the authority. And I know that everyone's excited because whenever you talk about money, everyone is completely open to having their mind blown. Everyone is ready to like, you know, just tell me how to change my whole life plan of money, Lord, because I'm so open to that. Um, Kind of kidding around, but I'm being being tongue-in-cheek just to say we need to be open to the word of God. This is God's word, uh, not my word. So, in regard to riches, riches are a wonderful thing uh, to steward. And God, let me see if I can get this slide up. Help me out, Derek. Boom. Next slide. 
God has a purpose in entrusting riches to us. And the key question when considering riches is, how do we relate to these riches in light of God's final authority in our lives? And this brings us back to one of our core values. You see, I I snapped a picture of this from our info desk. The third core value of us as a church, everything belongs to God. We are only his caretakers. It's a powerful statement. Everything belongs to God. We are only his caretakers. So this is the reality. Everything belongs to God. We are only his caretakers. It's derived from the Bible. What is the theological basis for it? And how do we live it out is the question we're going to be addressing today. So today we're going to read the text together. Uh, unlike most weeks where I go verse by verse through the text and bring you through each verse and you all get tired, this week we're going to uh, read the text as a whole and then we're going to talk about it. So if you'll open your Bible to James 5, we're going to read 5, 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It's a touchy subject, right? After some research, I'm convinced that all of the people that this passage is talking to are Christians. Rich Christians, working class Christians, perhaps even destitute Christians in the ancient world. So when we read from verse 4, Look, the wages you failed to pay your workmen, who are Christians, who mowed your fields, are crying out against you, the landover owner, who's a Christian. The cries of the harvesters, who are Christians, have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You, the rich person, have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You, Christian, have fattened yourself on the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men when they are not opposing you. So in understanding this passage, uh, the first thing I want to say is I really think that this has some application for all of us, even though it sounds almost hyperbolic and very extreme, there's application for all of us, because this encompasses the, 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 uh, the entire economic spectrum of where you might be, from very poor, even destitute, living hand to mouth, to kind of working, to being someone who might be a rich landowner. And in order to understand this text, we really need to go back to the um, ancient world that it was written in and see who these people were in this text. Who are these rich people? How did they get their wealth? Who were the poor people that they were oppressing, the workers of the field? Who were the harvesters? And what did the oppression look like? That makes sense, right? So we'll look at that. Uh, the really cool thing that God did in his sovereignty this week is I got to spend the first part of the week, along with Aaron Koonsman, talking with a New Testament scholar, who I didn't realize this, is like the authority on economics in the ancient world. So I said to him, hey, I've been working on this sermon from James 5. It's all about, seems to be all about money. Do you have any interesting things to say? And because he's a Bible nerd, he had a lot of interesting things to say. It was very, very cool. A lot of the things he said backed up things I'd already discovered, so it seemed to be very good stuff. So in the ancient world, there were three classes of people. There was a small number of people who owned land and had a lot of wealth. If you, if you owned land, you had wealth. That's how it worked in the ancient world. Uh, in the modern world, one could argue that education is a mark of wealth. Uh, but also, land ownership is still very important. But back then, it was everything. Having land 
was you were wealthy. The working class uh, is the second class of people, and this makes up a huge swath of people. And these are people who were living hand-to-mouth, who worked on the land of the super-rich. And then the final class were the destitute, which sounds like a, a really bad word to describe a group of people, but it's a very, unfortunately a very accurate word. They were considered outcasts in society. They were uh, unclean, according to the Jews, the Jews who were mis- misapplying uh, God's law in a very harsh way that was not loving. They were unclean, according to the Jews, wouldn't touch them. And they were also outcasts to Rome because they were people who couldn't contribute to society in the way that Rome values contribution. Rome values contribution, people that can do something tangible. These are people that are blind. Think of blind Bartimaeus that Jesus touched. These are people who have leprosy. Uh, These are the outcasts, and they lived on the outskirts of town. And there's there's a passage about Jesus going into the outskirts of town in the Bible that comes to mind. Uh, But when Jesus touched these people, it shook the world. It shook the world in a way that we can't understand because everybody, everybody, the religious people who are supposedly following God and society at large said these people are untouchable. And when Jesus touched those outcast people, it was a big, stinking deal. It it made everyone's hackles go up. Remember in Luke 4, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach release for the prisoners, recovery of sight to, to, to the blind, uh, to set the oppressed free, uh, good news for the poor. And that word for poor, I learned this week, is the word for destitute. So good news to the destitute. They hadn't had good news in quite a long time. So, G- so Jesus touched these people. If you were a, a landowner, uh, the way that you became a landowner of great wealth, and why there were so few of them, was because, say you had, uh, you had two landowners side by side, one person has one crop, one person has another crop, and a natural disaster happens, and one person's crop gets wiped out after all the sowing time had been completed. Well, the other landowner would then snatch up their land. These people are now destitute, basically. The other landowner would snatch up their land at like a bargain price, because the person's kind of at their mercy, and then they would take on the person that formerly owned that land as an employee to work the land, and they would pay them a menial salary to do this. So in this way a small number of families in the ancient world came to own all of the land. And people were just being, and, and, and these workers were kind of being oppressed in the sense that they uh, were not getting enough. And really, uh, when there was any profits or, or any overflow of resources in the land, the landowners ignored the needs of these workers and said, no, you still get this menial salary. An interesting side note is, and this is something I was looking into this week, God is not, was not pleased with this. This is not something that was just or equitable in God's eyes. Uh, circumstances happen. People lose their land. happens all the time. But God actually did this really awesome thing in the law in Leviticus 25 called the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, family lands were to be returned to their original owners. And the reason that God put this in the law was so that society could be protected from a small number of people having all of the wealth and everyone else getting kind of the short end of the stick. So God's law is so good. It's meant for our flourishing. I talked about the Sabbath last week. It's one day we need to rest. God knows that. He gives it to us. Uh, The law is good. God wanted to make sure that systemic, generational power didn't get concentrated in a certain number of people and that people were able to kind of shake out from from that. And so, yeah, you enjoy the land for 50 years and understanding that, yeah, it's going to return to these people and then we're going to go back to some sort of a stasis, right? It's pretty cool. And so... Stewart's is awesome. Everyone that moves from 
New York, somewhere else, Mrs. Stewart's. They have ice cream and hot dogs that have no calories or fat content or sodium. <laughs> and they, can, they really can only be described of as holy, a degree of holiness, you know. Maybe about as holy as I am. Um, so a company like Stewart's has, some, has a program called Profit Sharing. And this is something that I think would please God greatly when I look at like, the Old Testament model. When the company has a year of, of profiting, they share the profits with their employees. That's pretty cool. It's like a godly system. So I'm not promoting Stewart's as being you know, a Christian store, uh, but they have good hot dogs. And uh, they're really cheap hot dogs. I don't know why they're so good at Stewart's. I just don't understand it. So what God considers, I learned this week, withholding wages from workers, as we see in our text today, is not, is, is not only not paying them their salary, but not sharing in the profits of, of, the, of the land either. That's what God considers withholding wages. In other words, if they were paid their salary but also weren't given any of the extra, that would also be considered withholding in God's eyes. It's a stingy attitude of people that are out of touch with the people that are working for them, uh, storing up massive amounts of wealth to the point that they don't even take their workers into consideration. And follow me here. For Christians, when someone fails to take their employees into account in this way, it's a symptom, it's a sign that a person's trust has started to shift from God to money. Right? It's a sign that a person's trust has gone from God to money. But we believe everything belongs to God. We're only his caretakers. It's a different way of looking at the world. Listen to this, this, uh, this language in verse... Three, it says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. That's, that's storing up wealth, ignoring the workers. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. This is the same language with Cain and Abel when Cain murdered his brother Abel. Remember Abel's blood cried out to God for justice from the ground? This is very prophetic language. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, who is mighty to save. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. If people living paycheck to paycheck um, have their wages withheld by a wealthy landowner whom they work for, then the, work, then the result can even be the death of innocent people. You know, children uh, in these families would starve, babies would starve, because they weren't getting their, their, the, what they needed to live. This is a bad situation. And, and for the landowners, for the Christians in the, that are being talked to in this text, God is becoming uncomfortably close at hand, <laughs> I would say. So turning all this back on ourselves... Um, because this might be hard to relate to in some ways. Given the fact that we don't know what the future holds as, holds, as we talked about last week, hoarding wealth in any fashion, whether you get a small paycheck, a medium paycheck, or a giant paycheck, is evidence that one's trust is not in, the, is not in God as the provider, who's the all-controlling, all-powerful God that we serve, the one who knows the future, but that our wealth has become what we trust instead of God. And this is something the Bible talks about. It can, riches, the Bible teaches, can so easily usurp God's rightful place in our heart. And I've mentioned this idea before. You'd say you have, an, you have this uh, struggle in your life, and you, and you have, you say, you know, God's got to come through for me, right? God's got to come through for me. Um, 
If you have a plan B in case God doesn't come through for you, do you have faith in God? You know, this, is, this, is the, this gets to the heart of our, of our allegiance and, our, and, and God's lordship in our lives. If you have a plan B in place in case God doesn't come through for you, where is your faith? Plan B. If the plan B is God, then you're okay. Because <laughs> in this world system, as was pointed out this week to me, money is the answer to every problem. It really is. Money is the answer to every problem. But as Christians, we have to be different because God is the answer to every problem in the Christian church. That's what, that's what we've been taught. God is the answer to every problem. So how are we living as people in light of the fact that the all-controlling, all-powerful, close-at-hand God is overall in all and all in all? And that is we must keep God in his proper place as provider in our lives. We must think of God as being our provider and remove the God of trusting in money as provider from the throne of our hearts. We can't serve both God and money. And God uses some really strong language in this passage to dissuade people from putting their trust in hoarded wealth. You know, this is obviously hyperbolic. Um, Probably most people in here are not stratified in the way that these Christians are stratified in this passage, you know, with with rich people owning all the land and oppressing the workers. But the the principles are, are universal. Trusting in wealth, hoarding wealth in the last days is a preposterous idea because we don't know what the future holds. And, you know, think about it this way. I read this amazing quote that I wanted to share with you. Worldly wisdom is that a large nest egg is the fruit of a successful career. But what would it say about our, our lives, our priorities, and our choices? to have the judge return to find resources squirreled away while people die for lack of bread. And the idea of James is that the longer the riches are hoarded, the worse it becomes for a person's heart. The more God is not all in all, in all, and and above all, the more he's dethroned in our lives. Resources are are to be used in our lives uh, to share with people who have a need. That's one of the things our resources are to be used for. I want to read a passage from, from uh, Ephesians 4. four twenty eight. it says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer. This is speaking to a church where someone is stealing instead of working. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. So this idea of like sharing resources, it isn't the idea that we're giving away all of our money and becoming destitute. You know, it isn't the idea that we're, we're like doing this radical thing where we're giving up all our money and becoming destitute, that we're losing everything. It's the idea that money is dethroned from our hearts and God takes his rightful place. And then money becomes about, number one, taking care of our families, basic needs. You know, number two, giving a portion back to God. That's number two. And here we do that in our first fruits. We each give 10% of our income to God because that goes to God. And then number three, is having money available to give to those who have a need instead of hoarding our wealth, recognizing that God has called us to be conduits of money because we are, we're stewards of money. It's God's money. It's not private property. You know? it's, it's money that God's given us to hold on to, and we are supposed to view our money uh, through this lens. Of course, take care of ourselves, give, back to, give a portion back to God, and then have money available to help those in the body. And something we can certainly learn from this passage is you know, we might be out of touch with what other people need, this is calling us to be involved, to think about what can I do to financially help other people. Uh, this is what 
I think this passage is saying today. Don't hoard wealth. Don't let wealth be king of your heart. Let God be king of your heart and let his resources flow through you. Flow through you. And I really do believe the Bible talks about money so much. If you look at the metaphors in the Bible, I forgot the statistic. It's insane. When Jesus teaches, money is almost always on his lips. Because the principle from Scripture is you can't serve both God and money. It's the mutually exclusive thing that we have to deal with. You can't do both. I want to read this passage from uh, Luke 12, 15 to 34. I'm going to read it off the page here. This is a, a teaching of Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, Self, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And his solution? This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll store all of my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Retire. (laughs) But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is God putting himself in the place of provider and taking this guy out of the place of provider. This guy's providing for himself in giant barns. um, And God is saying, Look, I'm the provider. Um, This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then what will happen to all those resources you've squirreled away in your barns? Um, The implication is that God will do something more productive with them. Then Jesus uh, said this to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? I wonder if someone tried to answer when Jesus was teaching. Uh, you know, <laughs> I can. And then Jesus says, since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest of your life? Why? Consider how the lilies, lilies grow if the birds weren't enough for you. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you Oh, you have little faith. God clothes us. And do not set your hearts on what you eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father sees you. He knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This passage is so powerful in the context of the James passage. It's saying God is our sole provider, and God will do it. And we must trust him. We must trust him by not hoarding our wealth, but having an open-handed, uh, an open-handed view to be a conduit of God's resources, not hoarding them in our hearts. It's about God's lordship in our lives. Another passage in closing, James, uh, Matthew 6, 19-21. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And apparently this is a figure of speech for whatever you focus on. So if your eyes are bad, is a figure of speech for whatever you focus on. Okay? And in the context of money, he's saying, if you focus on wealth, money, and storing up money for the future, your whole body will be full of darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot both have a plan A in God and a plan B in money. The conclusion of this whole passage is that all of us are wealthy in the context of the world, whether we have a small or a large amount of money, we're, we're supposed to be conduits of wealth. It's God's wealth that we're stewarding. We're conduits. Everything that we have is God's. And we are just caretakers. We're supposed to have this idea of like, okay, the boss says to do that, there it goes. What are we going to do? Well, he'll provide more for us. It's going to be fine. This is a revolutionary way of looking at money, and it's something that will, you know, something that I read this week in, in Psalm 37, um, it says, never have I seen a righteous man forsaken. Never have I seen his children begging for bread. You know, it's this great idea. We're, like, we're just like children. God is our Father. He's given us these resources. And he plans to give us more resources. So if we continue to be faithful with what we have, it's just going to flow through us. It's just going to flow through our lives. Because it says in Matthew 25, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So this is, this is a sermon about lordship. This is a sermon about Jesus, God being the provider, and not money being the provider. About God being the, the solution to every problem, not money being the solution to every problem. It's about being a conduit of God's resources into a church and a world that desperately needs God's resources. It's about being a distribution center for the Lord. And this is, this is not economically the same as like, communism or socialism. This is God's economy. This is how God works. This is how God works. I'd like to invite the worship team up. We're going to sing this song, You Are My King. And I think that you can probably see why we chose this song. But this is a song that just uh, declares to God, you know, I want you to be my plan A. I want to think of you as my provider. In light of your all-powerful, ever-present, close-at-hand presence in my life, I, uh, I want to live differently. I want to look at my resources in a different way. I want to honor you with how I go about this area of my life. So for those who live paycheck to paycheck and those who are pretty comfortable and saving lots of money, it's really a hopeful message today that God is the giver of our resources and we're just conduits. We can be released from that pressure of frantically planning for the future that we don't know anything about or worrying about where the next bite of food is going to come from, because God is our provider. And God uses us as the body to provide for one another. Sometimes God's, the answer to someone else's prayer is you. Is you, as a conduit of God's wealth. Everything belongs to God. We are but his caretakers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory. Uh, it's nice to be little children and to be reminded that we are little children, that we must become like little children to enter into your kingdom, because you are the Father. And you are the provider. And you are the one who sits on the throne of our hearts. And uh, it's such a freedom for all of us, no matter where we are in regard to this topic of wealth. It's such a freedom to just have someone else 
be there. Have someone else be there. Have someone who sees us be there and care for us and provide for us. We love you. Help us to be the church, to be the body of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Be dispersed. Go and be the church.